Tom will continue our series through the book of Jeremiah. I'll be reading from three portions of Scripture this morning from Jeremiah, from Psalms, and from Romans. Jeremiah. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. From Psalm 40. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips, O Lord. You know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. And from Romans chapter 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Lord Jesus, may we truly delight in obeying what you have required of us to know about you in your law and in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Psalm 119.97 says, Oh, how I love your law. I have made it my meditation all the day. Is that the way you guys think of the Old Testament law, the law of Moses? (laughs) A lot of Christians don't. And I believe that the reason that a lot of Christians don't value the Old Testament law that way is because they don't know what its value is. They simply don't understand the the relevance of all those old laws and ordinances uh, to their life now. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, the value of God's law to hearts made new. The value of God's law to the believer. And, and the real essence of, of what we're going to be considering this message is what it is that makes a believer delight in the law of Moses, love the law uh, of Moses. And we're not going to, we're certainly not going to cover every base or answer every question. There have been many volumes of books and many, many sermons written on the topic of the believer's relationship to the Old Testament law. But 
we're going to kind of keep this big picture, and there are just a couple of of big picture things that we're going to we're going to consider. First is the very quickly and briefly, we're going to look at the value of the Old Testament law to the unbeliever. We've already talked about this some in our series on Jeremiah. We talked about it a lot in an earlier series on the gospel of Christ in the Old Testament. So I'm not going to put a lot of time into this, but we'll you'll hit the see the high points. And then where we are going to camp out is on this second big point, and that is the value of the law to the believer. And I'll kind of show you where I'm going before I go there. First, we'll see that the that the law of Moses reminds us that we can never make ourselves righteous in the eyes of God. Even as believers, it reminds us of this. And then secondly, the law teaches us about the character and ways of the God who already made us righteous in His eyes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the the real thesis, the point of this message is that the, the new heart of the believer wants to know all that it can about the character and the ways of God because the new heart delights in the personal knowledge of God. That's what life is for the believer. Jesus said the night before He was crucified in the high priestly prayer, He said, this is eternal life that that they might know You, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. That's what life is. Not just now, but forever. First, let's talk about the value of the Old Testament law for the unbeliever. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20 says that the law was given, this is the Apostle Paul, the law was given that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law explicitly purposed to close every mouth, to leave us all without anything to say to God in our own defense, to put an end to every notion that men could make themselves good enough for God. Hebrews 10 verses 1 through 3 certainly bear this out. It says, for the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. And guys, the only way to draw near to God without obstruction is to be perfect. Otherwise, it says, they would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, listen, in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the law purposed to remind Israel of their sinfulness. Galatians chapter 3, verses 24 and 25, Paul says, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. The law displays God's character and God's ways. And in doing so, it tells us what God demands of us. Because what God demands of us is His 
righteousness, his holiness. Leviticus 19.11, God said to Israel, you are to be holy for I, Yahweh your God, am holy. The law displays our utter inability to do what God's character requires of us. And the law condemns us and drives us to Christ, who did for us what we could never do for ourselves. Christ is the one who makes us righteous in the eyes of God. This isn't some ancillary or peripheral purpose of the law, guys. This is God's intention for the law in relation to the unbeliever. Now let's talk about the value of the Old Testament to the believer, the Old Testament law to the believer. And when I talk about the law, I'm talking about all of the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And I'll, I'll say a little more about that in a moment. The first facet of the law's value to the believer is very much tied to what we just said about its value to the unbeliever. And that is that what it proved to the unbeliever, it reminds the believer. It reminds us that we can never make ourselves righteous in the eyes of God. And again, I just point to the, all the things in the, in the tabernacle and the sacrifices and the priesthood that that said loudly and clearly, you people are not worthy to draw near to the presence of God. So the first facet of the law's value is to the believer is that it reminds us we cannot make ourselves righteous in God's eyes. The last four verses of Romans 9, in those verses, Paul presents an astonishing claim. He says that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, attained righteousness. And then he says that is the righteousness which is by faith. That would shake up the Jews of, of his time. And then he says, but Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. So the Gentiles didn't pursue righteousness, and they arrived at righteousness. The Jews pursued righteousness by law, and they didn't arrive at righteousness. And he says, why? Because they, the Jews, did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. That's from Isaiah 28, and it's talking about Jesus. It was not a failure of revelation that caused the Jews to reject the righteousness which is by faith. It was a failure of humility. They were not willing to, to, to embrace a way of being right in the eyes of God that they couldn't pat themselves on the back for. And in spite of everything that the law and the prophets told them about their incurable lack of righteousness, they insisted on staying on that path the Apostle Paul says that they sought to establish their own righteousness, their own righteousness. A few verses later in Romans 10 verse 4, Paul says something that would have been seen as even more scandalous by the Jews of his day than anything he had said up to that point in the passage. He says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Every word of that verse is critically important. Paul does not say Christ is the end of the law and stop there. 
Jesus made it very clear in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount that there was not going to be an end of the law. He said, he said, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. He said, not one word and not one stroke of a, not one letter and not one stroke of a letter of the law will pass away until all is accomplished. Christ is not the end of the law. Paul also does not say Christ is the end of the law for everyone who believes. See, he's not telling us that the law of Moses no longer has any relevance for the one who is in Christ. He's not saying that. What he does say is Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Now, what does that mean? It means that for everyone who trusts in Jesus, He, Christ, puts an end to every effort to make ourselves righteous in the eyes of God by doing what the law commands. Now please notice, I did not say that faith in Christ puts an end to the believer's effort to do what the law commands. I said faith in Christ puts an end to every effort by a believer to make himself righteous in the eyes of God by doing what the law commands. I hope you see a difference in those two statements. It's a critical difference. See, what Paul's saying here does not in any way negate even one letter of the law of Moses, not even one stroke of a letter of the law. Instead, Christ fulfills the law perfectly in us. (laughs) Romans 8, Paul says that that the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus fulfills the law. He says that the the requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. Now, everyone who believes in Jesus has received the perfect righteousness of Christ as a gift, credited to his account or her account when he didn't deserve it at all. And if you don't get that, you don't get the gospel of Jesus. The entire matter of righteousness in the eyes of God gets resolved for all time, the very moment that God brings a man, woman, or child to childlike faith in Jesus alone. Keeping or not keeping the commandments of the Old Testament law will never touch that believer's righteous standing in the eyes of God. It won't add to it, and it won't take away from it. And neither will anything else. Ever. Because our righteousness isn't our doing. Our righteousness is God's doing. Our righteousness in His eyes. Now does that mean that God doesn't care whether or not the person that He has brought into union with Christ and clothed with Christ's righteousness actually lives in a way that displays Christ's character? No, it does not. Of course it doesn't. Let me give you an illustration. If you were an orphan as a little child and a very loving man adopted you as his son or daughter, what made you his son? Was it your good works? No, it was his choice to adopt you that made you his son. You became his beloved son from the from the moment that he adopted you, but it would be utter foolishness to say that because you're already His Son and heir, that 
you have no reason to care about knowing or doing what honors Him and delights Him. In fact, it's because He adopted you that you have every reason to know and to care and to do the things that honor Him and delight Him. There's some really strange things that we do in our heads sometimes as Christians with this that actually defy our own experience in relationships. This brings us to the second facet of the law's value in the life of the believer, and this is where I really want to camp out. The, the law, uh, the law's value. The law teaches us about the character and the ways of the one who already made us righteous in his eyes. The Hebrew word that, uh, that we translate law from the Pentateuch actually doesn't mean law. The word Torah means instruction. God's Torah, God's instruction to His people through Moses includes everything in the first five books of the Bible. And that gracious instruction includes law. It includes many commandments that showed Israel specific things that they were to do and not to do. For those who trusted in themselves to become righteous before God, all of those do's and don'ts end up condemning them. Why? Because they can't do them. They can't keep God's law. But the positive purpose of those commands for those who did trust God instead of themselves was to teach the people of God about the character of God and about the ways of God. That's very valuable for someone who loves God. We saw last week in Jeremiah 31 and in Ezekiel 36 that God's new covenant takes our old spiritually dead hearts and replaces them. It's a heart transplant. God takes, Ezekiel 36 takes the heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh that is inclined toward God. He cleanses us. He sprinkles us with clean water. He puts His Spirit within us and He causes us to walk in His statutes and ordinances. He causes us. Because we have a changed nature. When God redeems a lost person, He transforms the very nature and heart of that person. Ephesians 4 tells us that the new man has been recreated in the likeness of Christ, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. The believer's new heart wants to know all it can about God's character and God's ways because the believer's new heart, the very nature of that heart is to delight in the person that saved him and the one who gave him that heart. The believer's heart delights not in just in knowing, but also in showing, in proclaiming and displaying in practice that which God's law reveals about God. Boaz in the book of Ruth is a marvelous example in the Old Testament of just such a heart. The law of Moses required that an Israelite not harvest his crops to the edges or corners of his property. 
But instead, he would leave those the produce in those corners unharvested so that the downtrodden and the poor, the widows, the orphans, the displaced foreigners could go and get food without cost. And the reason that's, that that requirement is in the law of God is because it is the character of God to provide for and to care for His people generously, especially those who have been less, less materially blessed than others. God declares over and over in the law of Moses that He is the advocate for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the foreigner who resided among the people of Israel. But again, God loves to use His people as the agents of His character to do His work, His way, in His creation because He made us in His image. So He instructed the people who owned farms to leave the gleanings of their fields. Now when Ruth, who was both a widow and a displaced foreigner, came to the fields of Boaz, Boaz didn't merely let her work her way to the corners of the field and harvest grain. He told his harvesters to drop bundles of grain on the ground behind them so that wherever she was in the field, there'd be grain for her to pick up. In fact, more than she could carry. Just think about it. You know, Ruth is going, going through the, the rows of wheat and, and sees one of Boaz's harvesters gathering up bundles and then he drops a bundle on the ground and she says, oh, sir, you, you dropped that. And he says, you know, I don't hear so well through that ear. Have a good day. And he walks off. The command regarding the gleanings showed Boaz something very powerful about the character and ways of God that he, that he loves to take care of his people. That he loves to take care of those who have less material blessing than others. Boaz was a man who trusted God and so he loved God. He didn't treat the commandment as if it was some rule he had to check off. He treated it as a template for showing off the heart of God and he didn't know where to stop. Is that the way you think of the law? Beloved, that's the exceedingly great value that the new heart of the, of the believer finds in the law of God. Jeremiah 31.33 says, I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they will be my people. And they won't have to tell each other, no God, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. That's personal. What happens when God writes His law on someone's heart? <laughs> That person delights in God's law because he delights in God. He loves the law because it teaches him about the character and ways of God so he can proclaim and show off the one who saved him. In Psalm 19, David declared that the law of the Lord restores the soul, makes wise the simple, rejoices the heart, enlightens the eyes, endures forever, and is more desirable than much fine gold and sweetest honey. Is that how you think of the law of Moses? He ends that psalm with this verse, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You get what's happening there? (laughs) David delights in the law because God is already his rock and his redeemer. 
He didn't delight in the law so that God would become His rock and His Redeemer. The same love for God's law is expressed by another Old Testament saint in Psalm 119, verses 97 to 105. I'm going to read that. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I have, I understand more than the aged because I have observed your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not turned aside from your ordinances for, listen, for you yourself have taught me. It's personal. You yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. From your precepts I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. And then he says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Does that sound like someone who values God's law? That's what God intends for all of us. Both of those passages are about the love for God's law that proceeds from the, from the love of, that we have for God. For His character, His ways, His works, because He has made Himself our rock and our Redeemer when we didn't deserve it. This whole message kind of launches off of what Bob said a couple of weeks ago about this. When he, when he said you need to read the Old Testament. I'm doing this because the New Covenant passage in Jeremiah 31 is talking about the same thing. And and then in light of what Bob said, I thought we needed to think about this a little bit more. Now, how does knowing the Old Testament law actually inform the way we live day by day? Well, it communicates principle by example. And this is something that Bob also touched on last time. This is so very important. The law does not tell us specifically what to do in every situation any more than it told the Jews in Moses' day what to do in every situation. It was never purposed to do that. Instead, the law gives us principles that drive what we do in every situation. And the principles all proceed from the character and the ways of God. And the way it accomplishes that is by giving us practical examples of what those principles of God's character look like when they're lived out by God's people. Let me say that again. It accomplishes, it accomplishes driving our behavior by principle in this way. It gives us examples of how the character of God is lived out by the people of God both in relationship to Him and in relationship to one another. Illustration. Bob gave... uh, I love this example in this this particular law in Deuteronomy uh, because I think it illustrates this beautifully. And this is what Bob used as an illustration a couple of weeks ago. I'm just going to do it again. (laughs) The hockey glass up here on the the front... in front of the, the front row of seats in our balcony. We weren't required to put that up by the law of the land. But you know why we did that? 
It reflects an aspect of God's character that is expressed marvelously in Deuteronomy 22, verse 8, that says, when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof. It's like a little fence along a flat roof, along the border of a flat roof, that you may not bring blood guilt on your house if anyone falls from it. How many of you have a lot of people hanging out on your roof? Probably not too many these days. Back then they had a lot of flat roofs and and they were gathering points. Uh, for for people. And God, being the loving and caring and protecting God that He is, it's His character to take care of His people. And so He tells His people, it's your, it's your character, if you belong to Me, to take care of My people. And, and the cool thing is, the parapet thing is... That doesn't cover all the bases. It even doesn't, be, it doesn't even begin to cover all the bases, right? It's just one thing. It's one example. When I, when I have to fix the plumbing in my house and turn off the water, there's this meter box out between the sidewalk and the street and my grass there, and I have to take the lid off that meter box and turn the valve off and then go in and fix the plumbing. And every time I do that, I put the lid back on the meter box after I open the valve or close the valve before I go back in the house. And you know why? Because I don't want some kid who's running up the street to break his ankle in that hole I just made. That's one of millions of potential expressions of this principle. You with me? That's the beauty of the law, guys. There's been a lot of, uh, and, and I should also say that the, that that what the law does with this, it actually gives us very practical kinds of things to think about. But we need to think about them. We need to be creative and we need to go way beyond just the, that minimal requirement. The Jews took, they, they gleaned out of the law 613 rules. And they said, this is what we have to do. That misses the point so badly that, it, that it's just beyond words. Because the law is principle by example. It shows us what God is like so we can do the things that reflect the character of God. If you want to be creative, beloved, be creative with that. There's been a lot of effort in evangelical circles to distinguish between ceremonial law and moral law in this regard. I have to respectfully say that I don't find that distinction anywhere in the Pentateuch. I'm not saying that we should still be presenting animal sacrifices and abstaining from eating bacon. I'd rather do the first than the second. But the perfect sacrifice has already been presented to God. The one that all those Old Testament sacrifices pictured and pointed to. And in Acts chapter 10, God made it crystal clear to Peter that there is no longer any food that is forbidden as unclean. Once you have the substance, there's no reason for the symbol to be required. But that does not mean, beloved, that knowing about those kinds of requirements, those ceremonial requirements under the Old Covenant, has lost value to us under the New Covenant. In fact, it has gained value. Everything in the law teaches us something about the character of God whether it's the commandment to use the same counterweights in your scale every time you measure out product to sell, the commandment to tell nothing but the truth in a court of law and never to accept a bribe, the commandment to accept no interest when you make a loan to a a neighbor, and if you took his coat as a down payment for the loan, 
to give the coat back to him on cold nights. We have no trouble seeing how those kinds of, those kinds of very practical commandments reflect the character and ways of God. But what about the commandments regarding sin offerings and burnt offerings and peace offerings and about what to do when your house gets mildew? One of my favorite books to teach is Leviticus because every aspect of the Old Testament law tells us something about the character of God and about the set-apartness, the holiness of God. Leviticus is a marvelous proclamation from beginning to end about the, the radical distinction between that which is in keeping with our holy God and that which is part of the curse. And if if you if you look for the character of God in the law, you'll find it. Now, sometimes you have to look, like Proverbs chapter two says, you search for wisdom, as for hidden treasure. That means it can be work. But if you do it, if you prayerfully look at the law and you look for the character of God in the law, you'll find Him everywhere. And in fact, you'll find Christ everywhere, everywhere. The new heart that loves God's character and God's ways loves God's law because it tells us a whole lot about what God is like. It tells us a whole lot about how to live day by day in a manner that delights God and shows Him off. The last thing I want to talk about is uh, this. The real beauty of all of this is that it's about God making our behavior match up with Christ's heart. In Jeremiah 31, 31, God promised to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant through Moses, which they broke. And then he revealed that this new covenant is unbreakable because it's all his doing and not ours. And then in verse 33, God said, This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And on their heart, I will write it and I will be their God and they will be my people. I will put my law within them and I'll write it on their heart. About 400 years before Jeremiah's day, Psalm 40 was written. Verse 8 of that Psalm says, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I delight to do your will, oh my God, your law is within my heart. Those are the words of Jesus. Psalm 40 is one of many messianic psalms of David in which David is speaking prophetically the words of the coming long-promised King and Savior, the Messiah, Jesus. Now notice that Messiah in that psalm does not say to his father, you have written your law on my heart. He says your law is within my heart. See, the difference between Christ and us is that when Christ took on our humanness, he had already from eternity past had the law of God in his heart. The law of God is intrinsic. The the, the character and ways of God were intrinsic to him because he's God. Now that same law has become written on the hearts of redeemed men and women and children through faith in Jesus Christ. The law of God, the law of God is now entirely in keeping with the nature of the believer. 
You with me? The law of God is now entirely in keeping with the nature of the believer as one recreated in the likeness of Christ. So we should expect His law to manifest itself in us in a manner that's like the way it manifested itself in Christ, right? If it's the same law in both hearts, it should look kind of the same. I'm going to read again all of verses 6 through 10 of Psalm 40. And as I do, listen for how the law of God in the heart of Messiah has already shown itself. Verse 6, Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I come. Oh man, there's, there's power in those words. Messiah says, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. And then he says, I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips, O Lord, you know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. Even though Jesus perfectly kept all the commandments regarding the sacrificial system in the law of Moses and was the only man ever to do so, to perfectly keep it, he says, sacrifice and meal offering, Father, you have not desired. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. And again, that's because those were pictures. They were foreshadowings of, of the far greater sacrifice. The perfect Complete sacrifice for sin for all time. The poured out blood of Jesus that we remembered this morning. And then in verse 7, Jesus says, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. (laughs) The law of God in the heart of Christ was put on perfect display when Jesus came. Just like the scroll of the book, the prophets had declared that He would. He in whose heart the law of God always dwelled came to do what he always delighted in doing. The will of God. He came from heaven to earth. He became a man. He lived a sinless life. He willingly died on a cross in our place to pay the debt that we owed to God because of our sinful rebellion against Him. And He paid that debt so that all who trust in Him alone may be His forever drawn into perfect relationship with Him. He gave Himself up for us and then He rose from the dead victorious over sin and the curse. And and while He was here, while He was here, He in whose heart the law of God always dwelled did something else that we should notice. Verses 9 and 10, He proclaimed glad tidings of God's righteousness. What is it that makes the proclamation of God's righteousness glad tidings? It's the fact that He gave us His righteousness as a gift. Messiah spoke of God's faithfulness, God's salvation, God's steadfast covenant love, God's truth. He says all that right there in that psalm. He showed God's righteousness to all mankind by what He did. Now the law of God 
written in the new heart of every believer, purposes to do the same as Christ did. His character and His ways have become ours purely by His doing. So we, like Christ, proclaim and display what the law reveals about God. So that those who have already received Christ's righteousness as a gift and those who will receive Christ's righteousness as a gift might know about the one who is our Savior and Lord. And that's what the law of God written on the new hearts of God's redeemed people does. It causes us to delight in doing His will and in proclaiming His righteousness given to men, His faithfulness, His salvation to all who may hear. Beloved, the value right now, the value right now for the people of God in knowing the Old Testament law is the same as it has been ever since the law was given. The same value that it had for Moses and Boaz and David and Jeremiah and Peter and Paul. It reminds us that we can never make ourselves righteous in God's eyes. That Jesus had to do that. And it teaches our new hearts about the One who is our all in all. It instructs us in His character and ways so that we may do the very thing that we have been recreated to do. The very thing that is now completely in keeping with our new nature. Both to proclaim and to show off our great God and Savior every day of our lives until the day that we get to stand in His glorious presence with sin and the curse forever done away with. Dear Father, teach us to love Your law because we love the One who has graciously written Your character and Your ways on the new hearts that You have given to us in Christ alone. It's in His precious name that we pray. Amen.